those space people a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects today we have gavin tolometti he is a postdoctoral researcher at the western university in ontario canada His current research is in planetary science and he has a background in geology. Gavin is also the host of the awesome podcast The Diaries of Space Explorers which is also on all podcasting platforms so do check it out. Welcome to the podcast Gavin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's uh, quite interesting for me too because it's the first time I'm having a fellow podcaster. Really excited to you know dive right in and talk about our uh, share our experiences of doing podcasts on space. But before we do that, maybe let's talk about your research and then we can chat about uh, compare notes and chat about the whole podcasting scene. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I think you already gave a good introduction. So my research is in the field of planetary science, but my background does initially come from geology. Was always hard rock geology as an undergrad. So going into the field, looking at rocks and minerals. just trying to understand the earth itself and the different processes that we see occurring or the processes we don't see occurring and it actually wasn't until the final year of my undergrad when i started to get quite interested in planetary science i was attending a lecture and the topic was on comparing the interiors of mars and venus just to show how venus is so much is probably more similar to earth and why mars is completely different and that's what really started to spark my interest in Okay, let's see if we can actually how can I learn more about other planetary bodies and moons? Like how can I even learn more about our own planet by studying other planets and vice versa? So I started to look around for grad school opportunities because I knew that was the best way to get research in planetary science. And originally I am from the UK originally, so I did look at the UK at first, but I also started to look into towards Canada because a friend of mine she did a year abroad there and she told me actually about this a department an institute that did work in planetary science so I looked into it and at the time it was the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration at Western University which is now the Institute for Earth and Space Exploration and that's when I started to get into the research comparing analogs on earth what i mean by that by analog is just a feature or a landscape that looks similar to what we see on another planetary body so i'd study earth to try and get a better understanding of what might have happened on other bodies And from that I was able to stem from a masters into my PhD program where I started to learn a lo- little bit more about the moon and what types of processes happen on the surface of a natural satellite and now I'm actually starting to do a lot more of my own independent work as a postdoctoral researcher to really try and establish myself as a fully fledged scientist trying to constantly trying to contribute and demonstrate the what I'm able to provide for the planetary science community And right now I'm working on really two I say I want to say two major projects but two main themed projects. One is to use radar off of the lunar reconnaissance orbiter and the Chandrayaan-2 spacecraft to study what the surface characteristics are like within regions in the south polar area of the moon that are in permanent shadow that never receive sunlight because these are areas where they're predicted to find water ice material that could be used for long-term exploration. And then the second one is to again continuing my work using the earth to understand other processes by studying a crater that's in Labrador, Canada called the Mustastan Lake impact structure to try and get a better understanding of how impact craters might have modified planetary bodies throughout our solar system. So that's really a breakdown of the work I'm 
doing right now. So it gives me a lot a chance to work with a lot of different planetary remote sensing data sets and images, but also get to go into the field and bring that back to the laboratory. Because that's actually one of the big me messages I like to share when I talk about my research. You have to get out of the lab and away from computers if you really want to understand how planets work. Because it's not always going to be just numbers and images. You have to actually physically see what these features might look like. They're not going to be a perfect example because it's never going to be a perfect comparison, but really need to get an understanding of what they actually look like outside because we all know nature's not perfect. Nature is messy. So you can't use what we see on textbooks and on data to really get an idea like, oh, this is what it has to look like, which is probably the complete opposite because sometimes they don't always look like what you expect them to look like. So yeah, that's really what a, that's really a rundown of the work that I do. Wow, that's that sounds super cool and very similar to a lot of sci-fi, uh, space sci-fi novels that I read, which is super duper cool. Um, let, let's dive into that a little bit ahead. But what's interesting was uh, when I was taking a look at your profile on LinkedIn, I saw that you saw, uh, that you did a lot of really interesting internships at the Canadian Space Agency, also at ESA and uh, a planetary center in Texas in the USA. So can you talk about how you landed all these opportunities? Because these are like quite distributed space agencies across geographies. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to say, quickly say that for the Canadian Space Agency, they weren't internships. They were analog missions that professors at Western had won through grants to that were funded by the Canadian Space Agency. And I was uh, lucky enough to have these opportunities to get to work in these analog mission environments to simulate what it would actually be like in a real space mission hosted by maybe one day the space, Canadian Space Agency or the European Space Agency or NASA. Uh, I know one was in 2016 when it was the CanMars mission hosted by CSA, and I got to simulate how a rover would actually operate on the Martian surface. And then in 2019 was we went from Mars to the moon, and we I worked as like a data manager on a planning team to organize data that would come from a rover and how then I'd have to distribute it to different members of the science team so they could actually quickly process the data then analyze the data. So from that, we had to learn a lot about real-time decisions because we had to simulate what it would actually be like in a mission control scenario where you can't just walk away for a day to think about the data. You've got to make the decisions immediately because the rover only has so much time on the surface of a moon to get all this data before lunar night comes and it probably loses power and then it's gone forever. And for ESA, the European Space Agency offers workshops for so many people who are part of the European Space Agency community, and Canada is included because they are a collaborative country. Not many people know this, actually. I came to know about it quite recently myself. Yeah, they you always have to go to the... They never really put it on a lot of their emails. You have to actually click on the links and look at what countries are eligible, and they do give you a list of all the countries. And I think Canada is the only country outside of Europe that could actually participate in European missions, European workshops, and European internships. Yeah. So it's for any Canadians that listen to this, if you can't get much luck with the CSA or down south with NASA, the European Space Agency also employs Canadians. So you can get a lot of great opportunities to work in different institutes across Europe. And for Texas, that was an internship hosted by the Lunar and Planetary Institute. And it's where I got to work with nine other graduate students who I still stay in contact with today. They're incredible people, and a lot of them do amazing research in planetary science. And we had to do a lot of group, group work 
trying to plan an alternative landing site in the South Polar region of the moon to try and address high priority science goals that could tell us more about the geologic history of the moon. And we got to learn how to protest different data sets that we've never touched before, how we can understand how we'd actually plan a route for a rover, thinking about hazards and are specific sites actually going to help us address important questions. And as a good plug, we also got to see incredible things such as the the Apollo sample curation vaults. We got to see behind the scenes what's it like Johnson Space Center looking at the robotics lab. And we got to meet a lot of incredible scientists, senior scientists at the Lunar Planetary Science, Lunar Planetary Institute. So it was an amazing opportunity. And I also, the one I attended, it's also eligible for Canadians and internationals. So it's not just for Americans. So anyone can apply for it. And that's, and I did the graduate student branch. There's also an undergraduate branch, and that's also open to Canadians and internationals. Oh, that's really great because very few things in the U.S. are usually open to non-citizens. And this is this is really great to know. Talking about your research or during your internships and also, you know, during your uh, PhD as well as your postdoctoral research, uh, can you talk about what are the kind of data sources you have? So I'm assuming there would be some sort of uh, satellite images or images in general. What are the kind of different kinds of data that you analyze? I would say I analyze a couple of different types. Uh, the main one that I studied a lot during my PhD and continuing with my postdoc is a remote sensing technique called synthetic aperture radar. Uh, it uses, if anyone's not familiar, it uses radio wavelengths that will that are emitted from a instrument. It could either be on a, a plane or on a satellite or even usually on a plane or a satellite and sometimes lower flying um, platforms. And it will emit these signals and it can tell us a lot about the physical and electrical characteristics of a surface. And what's great about radar is that you don't need sunlight. It doesn't need to be illuminated. You can just fire it into anywhere that's in pure darkness and you'll still get an image back. So I got to use data sets from a lot of different platforms that were collected by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I got to use some of the European Space Agency's Sentinel-1 satellite data, which is publicly available uh, to download. So the, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory ones, you can download them, but you need to know how to process the raw data, which isn't, which I found out when I first got here was not straightforward. So <laughs> it does require understanding how you can actually take raw data, manipulate it, process it, and then output the data that you want. So it does require a computer science type background, I would say. And I've also got to look at loads of different data sets from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's still orbiting the moon. I've got to look at some of the high resolution images from, from the narrow angle uh, camera. I've got to look at some of the images from the wide angle camera, looked at thermal imagery from the diviner instruments, radar data from the miniature radio frequency, instruments. So I've gotten to look at all these different types of remote sensing data sets. It's a very summarized view of it, but it's allowed me to really try to understand what's really happening on the surface of a planetary body. Because I also believe that you can't just rely on one or two data sets to really try to see what's going on, because each remote sensing data set's limited to what it can tell you. And it's also got different limitations, such as some have better resolution and some have better data coverage. Some are global, some are more specific. Like NAC is very high resolution down to half a meter per pixel for the moon. But it doesn't cover, it almost covers everywhere, but it's the area that actually images is so small that you, you could need multiple ones to work with, while the others have more of a global view. So 
it's why I do think that looking at all these different data sets that I got to get a bigger appreciation about the amount of work that a lot of Earth observation scientists and, and a lot of planetary scientists have to have when it comes to trying to study the surfaces of not just the Earth, but other planetary bodies. Okay, cool. Yeah, I absolutely, uh, completely agree with you that processing of satellite imagery is has always been a pain. It, it's never straightforward. But I guess there are also nowadays a lot of um, tools that are providing, uh, that are making processing of satellite imagery easier. Sometimes you, it's good to start with scripts that may be a bit more generalized and coarse. So even now, I still use some scripts that I would argue that are pretty general and coarse, but they get me the information that I need to answer certain questions or to extract certain data. Because I think it, it's not all about creating the most sophisticated script. If you can do it, I'd say definitely do it. But I can tell personally, I don't have the, the skills right now to make my scripts even more sophisticated. A lot of it for me is self-taught. So I have to constantly learn how to apply different coding methods or to learn entirely new scripting methods, which for someone in a geology background, it's not easy because I'd never touched anything related to physics or computer science. Computer science. Uh, until now. And part of me wishes when I was an undergrad first year, I took at least one or two of these courses, but I never knew I was actually going to be working remote sensing data. I was so hard set on hard geology. I thought, oh, I'm never going to look at this. Why would I need to learn these skills? <laughs> Hindsight really is a pain sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. But I do recommend anyone who's wanting to get into this, that publicly available ones through the company you mentioned, Up42, and the European Space Agency also has a lot of workshops when it comes to trying to understand remote sensing data. And they give you crash courses on how to work with these data sets. And some, it, and some data area places do have, they give you pointers on how you can actually go about working with this data. Or there are even papers out there that are just fully dedicated to explaining, this is how you start with the raw product of this data set and how you can get to a derived map projected version. The downside is some of them might say, oh, you need to get this software, which probably comes with a, with a prescription, a subscription. So <laughs> there's a, you got to be very careful about what type of data set you want to work with, but some you can actually get to play around. Like with, actually, maybe a quick plug for planetary science data, a lot of it can be worked with the United States Geological Survey's integrated software for images and spectrometers, which is short for, which is short for ISIS-3. Not the best abbreviation, but, <laughs> but as long as if you can work with Linux or a Mac coding, so if you do C shell or bash, you could actually process quite a different types of remote planetary remote sensing data sets. Uh, the LRO NACs that I mentioned, and even the radar data, you could actually get to process, take the raw data off of the archives and actually get to see what the final product looks like. Oh, wow. And they've actually recently, the USGS have, they've created a GitHub page because everything's going on GitHub now, to explain the steps on this is how you install it, and then this is how these are different processes, steps you can take to start with a raw data and get to a final product. So for anyone who's maybe interested in getting into planetary science, particularly remote sensing, maybe if you're still in school or you're an undergrad, you should maybe take a look at this and see if, and if you have a passion for coding, this might be the best way for you to start to get an idea of what it's like and scripts can, you can learn how to make scripts automated. You can learn how to tell it to find specific data sets online without you having to dig through everything. Sometimes you do have to do a little bit of digging in archives to find the specific area you want, but websites are getting better now for helping you find these data sets. Um, hope I answered the question there. I think I talked for quite a bit. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, GitHub uh, definitely is, um, is is the holy grail, I guess, of, for everything. Even you can even find a lot of repos uh, for the entire flight software for satellites and even rovers, perhaps. So that's a great resource, and also not just the original source, but a lot of the feature branches can also be quite awesome. So scripts. When you said scripts, do you use Python scripting or which uh, any other toolboxes? If I'm using, if I'm working with ISIS three, I will use Bash. Bash scripting because it's the most user friendly when it comes to working with that software. You can do C shell as well, but I learned using Bash and I haven't been able to change since. I'm a little surprised because I mean I also use Bash, but I always thought Python is more uh, image friendly. You know, image processing friendly. They've recently adapted it to Python, especially if you have a Windows for a while. If you had a Windows computer, you couldn't run ISIS three. It wasn't made for it. But now they've started to adapt Python scripts that you have to like have a subsystem, subsystem Ubuntu to work it still. Or I would highly recommend do a dual. I've tried subsystem, it's still a lot of bugs. But if you have a dual system, it's just fully Linux Ubuntu, it will work without any issues. That's I highly recommend if you can get a Linux to work on its own, just use Linux. Windows is not the best for working with this. But they are starting to introduce Python because they're realizing that Python's more universal. It's one of the easiest languages to start learning. And it's, a very, it's the most user-friendly. I think out of all the languages, but I do use Python outside of remote sensing to like with data manipulation, data plotting, because it does present data a lot better. People will argue that R and MATLAB could also do the exact same thing, which it can, but it's just, I, MATLAB requires a prescription. I've never had to learn R before. I've only been able to learn Python and I don't feel comfortable leaving, learning a whole new language when I'm already starting to learn uh, one, one already. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Octave, there's also Octave as an alternative to MATLAB, but again, I, I find it a little clunky, you know, it, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's very, it's, it's slow. It takes a lot of time. It's way slower than Python. It's very bulky. I'm also like an avid fan of Bash. I prefer to throw in Bash everywhere and uh, annoy my coworkers because they're not able to run Bash as seamlessly on their Windows machines <laughs> because the Sigwin is sometimes can be a pain. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. That's good to know that Bash can do pull off image processing as well. Cool. So in your team, can you talk about your team? What 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 are the backgrounds of your team members? What do the other people in your team work on? No, certainly. Um, the research group I'm part of right now at the Institute for Sp- Earth and Space Exploration at Western University, um, we're under the lab nicknamed Space Rocks, uh, PI'd by Dr. Gordon Azinski. And we have an overarching theme. It's planetary surface processes. But we do have a strong uh, expertise in impact cratering processes because that's what a lot of students, uh, even myself, I still work on impact craters, but a lot of other students work on impact craters. But we all study different subfields of impact cratering. We've got some students that are looking to how hydrothermal systems that are created by impact, ap- created after an impact cratering event can form and how it could potentially have harbored microbial life uh, over 3 billion years ago and how it could potentially have happened on Mars as well since it was once liquid water. We have other students uh, looking into melt, how melt that was produced by an impact event was formed and distributed across a crater and outside a crater. We have other students uh, looking into planetary data sets collected by uh, new instruments surrounding Mars, such as Cassis. So again, to look at new high-resolution imagery and spectra spectroscopy images of the surface to learn about the composition of Mars. And we've got others that are looking into the Sudbury Impact Crater Basin, looking at to mainly the economic potential 
the creator has and how certain ore deposits probably formed. And then we've got others that work on in the on the Canadian High Arctic, trying to understand some of the craton rocks that are some of the most ancient rocks on Earth. What type of history are they recording? What can they tell us about a period of the Earth that is still very uh, foreign and unknown to us? What was it like for these rocks to survive over three billions of years of erosion and modification? And also get to learn a little bit about how the Arctic's changing uh, environmentally. We're looking at gullies, how the morphology and shape is changing, and also noticing that the temperature conditions during field expeditions are becoming higher and higher every year. So, which is a it's not the greatest in terms of uh, global warming. That sounds exciting. I mean, what's the typical career path of somebody who wants to get into planetary science? So, how do you get there, and how do you progress from there? I will say, if you asked me this question ten years ago. It would have been, you have to have a STEM field, no questions, no arguments. You needed to, especially if it, it would either have been, geology would have been the number one they tell you to get. You want to have a background in geology if you want to be a planetary science or astrophysics or physics. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's becoming complete, much more interdisciplinary and diverse. Planetary science is not just a single group of people. It's now a title for many different people, especially when the introduction to astrobiology became a thing. So biologists and microbiologists will be, could be, you can get that background becoming planetary science. Engineers were always part of them, but they weren't really planetary scientists. They were more, they were engineers in space, the space sector. So engineering is becoming a lot more um, diverse. We've also got chemists. We're looking at geographers, looking at social scientists, such as psychologists, people in kinesiology and law. I'm sorry, what's kinesiology? Uh, it's like the mechanics of a human like health, of a human body. Okay, wow. I'm going to look that up. <laughs> yeah. And then we also, and then so, and it continues to grow even in sciences. Um, we've got more fields in physics are joining, more fields in engineering, more fields in even geology when it has its subfields of environmental, sci- geophysics. We're, we're slowly expanding, and planetary science is now not just considered a geology core. Geology will always be like the main center because a lot of most planetary scientists you meet will probably have a background in geology. But nowadays, it's now not as uncommon to meet someone who says like, oh, I did biology before I did planetary science. Like, oh, no, I was doing psychology. And then I decided to apply it to planetary science to probably understand the the mental impact that astronauts may be faced with long term duration in space. So it's becoming so interdisciplinary that I'm very excited to see what where it's going to be in the next 10 years. Wow, sounds fascinating. Now that you mentioned microbiologists, have you read the new book called Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir? No, I haven't, no. I can put it on my bucket list of things to read, though. <laughs> For me, any sci-fi you read, there's always a little bit a mention of geology, some reference made to an alien planet. But for me, that is geology. But for you as a geologist, that might be you know, too rudimentary. So I wanted your perspective. So we can... Uh, uh, jump into the f- my my favorite questions for today, which I really wanted to talk about. How did you get into podcasting? So I got into podcasting like, way before the podcast that I run now. Um, at Western University, there's a graduate student organization that it's its own. It's a podcast group, and their main objective is to interview graduate students across the university to let them talk about their research, give them about 20-25 minutes to talk about them, what is it they do, and what they hope to do in the future. And I got at, I was actually at first asked to come onto the podcast, talk about my research at the time in 2018. And from then, 
I actually got really into not just listening to podcasts, but into podcasting. And I, after I approached them to ask if I could join the committee and start to become a host and a producer, I was accepted into the committee. And then for all the way up to the end of my PhD in 2021, I was a part of that group. So I had almost three years of podcasting experience working with the grad group, which is actually called Gradcast. It, but I didn't really start my podcast myself to think about running my own until, unfortunately, it took the pandemic for me to really start it. But it's when the pandemic started, I pretty much lost a lot of my ability to contribute to outreach in science communication. I mean, I did have online platforms, but if, as we all know, when it comes to understanding algorithms and trying to stand out and get your message across, it's extremely difficult, especially if you use Instagram. And that's like now, so if I was to suddenly use TikTok, I doubt I'm going to be able to get much exposure. But I knew when I struggled in social media exposure, I knew I could make up for it in podcasting. I enjoyed podcasting. I enjoyed chatting with people about these space-related topics and accessibility issues. I enjoyed just getting to find ways to expand these messages to different parts of the world that might not even know that they're even a, an issue or didn't even think about them. So in, 20, in January 2021, I decided to start my podcast, The Diocese of Space Explorers. But I wanted to make sure that I made my message to make the message of the overall podcast clear with it, every person I would talk with. So I knew that I wanted to not just speak with people that were in the space industry that were always just high up in their positions, because it's amazing to talk to people who are CEOs or senior scientists, engineers, or project managers, because you get to hear all the incredible things that they've done. And it's an inspiring incentive because people who want to be in that position can get there. The issue, the only issue I had with that is you've left a huge gap between that person's position and the person that's being inspired. They tell them they they tell you their story, but the problem is there's no guarantee your path is going to be exactly the same as theirs. Sometimes they would say, if it wasn't for this fellowship or this opportunity, I might have not been where I am. So you come to question, well, if you never get that opportunity, how are you going to? Would you be able to get there in the end? I'm not saying you wouldn't be able to, but it could be a lot harder. So I thought. If I'm going to have this podcast, I can't just narrow it down to just to high, high, highly established uh, personnel. I have to be able to make it accessible for everyone. So I knew that I wanted to go talk with people, not just in top of companies and space industries, but also undergraduate students, graduate students, and then not just scientists and engineers, because nowadays that is not the only way to get into planetary science. We don't have to follow the traditional STEM path. I wanted to talk to people in business, law education, journalism, medicine, branching out to all these different um, fields just to show that it's not just, you don't have to be in science or engineering to get to space. You can come from different backgrounds and you get to hear from all these different people how they made it possible, whether it was starting a podcast of their own, maybe getting into science communication and getting to network and collaborate with a lot of scientists to really understand how they can what their work's actually about, but then they help them communicate their work because not all scientists and engineers are good at communicating what they do because they're so used to talking in detail. When it comes to talking to maybe someone outside the field, they are completely lost because they've never had to simplify their work that much. So that's why I really wanted my podcast to be, and I'm, I'm continuing it to make sure that's what my podcast will be, to make sure everyone has a chance for their journey and their voice to be heard. And not even just from well, their academic background or non-academic background is, but 
generally, whether they're an underrepresented group, whether they're someone that never really gets to have the chance to talk about the work. And if it's not about their work, maybe part of the journey, they get to learn certain things that they can't really express through their research. I want to give, have that platform be the place that they can do it because the platform is never about me. I am merely just the conduit. Yeah. The platform is for them to tell their journey, tell their story and to really share why is it they got into space? Like, what is it that makes space so important? Why should the general public care about all these missions and all these in- innovations and technology demonstrations? Because NASA's always been good, and even ESA's always been good at promoting what they do. The problem is it's still sometimes hard to get the voice out from people who are only at a higher position because either they have to only they can only say so much or they can they try to express the bigger picture, but not really connect that bigger picture to why someone who has nothing to do with space should really care what's going on here. Because it might be hard to reach everyone, but you can definitely reach out to some and that could easily make a difference globally. Yeah, wow. I mean, I completely resonate with that. I also use the podcasting platform for networking. And this was also born during the pandemic. I I believe there's a lot of podcasts that have been a product of the pandemic (laughs) because we're all figuring out different ways to reach out to one another. It can be so fabulous in connecting people. So nice to know I wasn't too crazy just to start a random podcast. (laughs) Nice to be validated. (laughs) <laughs> I thought it was a bit crazy for myself as well, because I then a year before that, I never would have thought I'd start my own podcast. So maybe it was always in the back of my mind, but I thought, I don't know, would people take me seriously if I tried to do this? And I think that's another thing I, I did look, I have learned. You can't really go into starting a podcast thinking I'm going to do this to get as many likes as follows as possible. Yes. Because then you're going to be severely unmotivated if you realize it's extremely hard, especially now with so many podcasts, to get that exposure you want. If you started 10 years ago when people were going like, what the heck is a podcast? We're coming up. That would have been different because you're now something brand new. And I was like, oh, this is something that's interesting and odd. What's going on here? Now it's so podcast is one of the main ways we get uh, information about the world, whether it's news, whether it's just uh reviews on scientific work whether it's just um funny antics from some of our favorite podcasters but it's one of the that's why i realize it's one of the main ways we get information so but i can't you can't do it for the the views and the follows if for me knowing if i could if my podcast has actually helped inspire even just a couple of people is enough of a reward for me yeah absolutely i mean uh I'm pretty sure every single cat video out there has more views and likes than any podcast episode I posted. So there's no way to compare. But yeah, I also look at it more as a personal journey Mm -hmm. uh, because I've come a long way. Like I said, I don't know. I mean, you probably were already used to podcasting and listening, you know, the whole production, the the process of production and listening to your own voice. I think it took me about five episodes to not cringe when listening to my own voice. Oh, (laughs) Yeah, it's you got to get past that. Even nowadays, I still <laughs> cringe if I either said something in a way that I wasn't entirely satisfied with, or maybe the response to one of my guests' comments. I was like, "Oh, that's yeah. very cringy." <laughs> um, but I also appreciated that when you do a podcast by yourself, it's a lot more work than people give credit for. It's not just the recording and getting to reach out to people, but then you've got to do the editing, then you've got to do the final formatting, you got to find a place to post it, and then you've got to share it. So it's it's so much easier if you were just, my main job is just to record, meet people and that's it. Then you'd hand it over to someone who would edit it. They would then hand it over to someone who would share it. Then it's less 
the hassle. But again, I treat this more as a hobby slash, as even like you said, a personal uh, growth experience. I, I can't treat it as a, as work because if I treat it as work, I'm not going to enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. That's so true. That's that's so absolutely true. Uh, and I completely get that, you know, kicking myself mentally every time a podcast episode doesn't go as I expected. Mm -hmm. But that also has this perk of, you know, sometimes you don't expect the conversation to go really well because you realize, oh, I have very little in common with this host, with this guest. Uh, but then you're just curious and then you completely hit it off and it's one of the best episodes you recorded. So it did adds a lot to your pers to one's personal growth. Completely get that. So how do you find guests? Not a lot. Half of it, at the start of the podcast, a lot of it was reaching out to people I already knew that I think would be incredible guests. And after that, some of it came to using LinkedIn, Twitter, even Instagram. Just when I come across someone, I think, oh my, you know what? They sound like an incredible person to invite. And then I send a message and I just hope that maybe they will read it. And then they will respond to it because half the time when I send messages out, either people are super busy, they can't do it. Or sometimes I don't get a response or sometimes the schedules are so conflicting. It's very hard to narrow down time that everyone can do. So well, a lot of it is just always, always searching and always reaching out. There's that's usually one of the best ways you can do it. Or now the pandemic's hopefully now the pandemic's coming to closer to an end, going to attend workshops and conferences, you get you just sometimes just run into people and you think, oh, you know what, that person might be very good to send you or maybe I'm going to approach them and see if they'd be interested. So that's really the best way I've found um, reaching out to people. I was also wondering how much time you spend on preparing, recording, processing and everything else. I, it would depend on the episode. I have had episodes where I've had to do pretty much little to no editing to them because every we just everything just hit off the the timings the 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 flow of the episode and the lack of um because sometimes with an episode if someone's nervous you get these awkward pauses it happens to everyone I've done it as well so I never it's it's an easy thing to fix but sometimes you have episodes where if someone's not comfortable with an answer, I'm always very respectful and say like, okay, we can either remove it or you can just try and re-answer again if you feel like you want to. And then I can remove the one they didn't want and then either add the answer they did want, or I could just cut that question out altogether. Because again, it's for the guest, it's not for me. So I would say sometimes I have an easy episode if I include getting it all set up, I mean, getting it all put onto Audacity, editing it, and then putting in the intro and outro and all the music, getting get quickly editing that, posting it, about an hour. I could see. The longer ones, I'd probably have to spend a couple hours still editing the episode if I know I have to listen through the whole thing and keep an eye out for the parts that we knew had to probably be edited. That takes a little bit longer. But again, I do this for the guest. I'm doing it for my own personal journey, so if I know if I have to spend a little bit longer on an episode, I will spend a little bit longer on episode because I don't want to rush it and then find out that I've made that maybe a contributed a major error or they I completely ignored one of their concerns about the episode and published it anyway because it I don't want the guests to feel like I'm taking advantage of them so now as you've said you've tried to have guests on on your podcast the diary of space explorers from across diverse verticals you know from from law engineer scientists different backgrounds um, so how do you see the future of this podcast? Do you just intend to continue with this or do you want to try something different in season three? Because right now you're on season two, right? Yeah. Season three, 
I would really love if I can continue, if I'll be able to continue this further. Season three, I'd love to actually have some interviews in person. It would be so good to actually get to sit across a table and just chat with the person because I know I listened to a bunch of other podcasts that did this before the pandemic and now some are able to do it again, go back into doing it, uh, depending where they are. So it would be good just to actually if I meet someone that I think would be great and they say, oh, I've got some time now. I'm like, oh, perfect. Let's record it. Because then it feels even more natural that it's not just a quick setup over Zoom. But I think that's the big thing I'd really want for season three. And I also want to continue to be branching out to as many different guests as possible. Uh, being in North America, it's easy to connect with a lot of um, Canadian, American, and Western European guests, which is not a bad thing. It's really good because everyone here is super diverse anyway. But I still want to try and branch out and actually get the perspectives of other people in the space community outside of these more developed um, countries. Again, idea. I want to be able to find like what's the perspective of space from people in South America, Africa, or even Australia and Oceania around the Southeast Southeast Asian region. Like these are areas I really want to try and branch more out to. So I'm hoping maybe later in this season and perhaps in season three, I'll be able to achieve this. Yeah, I mean, happy to connect you with anybody from India. I know, uh, I mean, the space community, like everywhere else in India, it's quite close-knit. So everybody is mostly connected to everybody else. There's a bunch of really exciting startups as well, space startups in India. So just let me know. Happy to connect you. Oh, that'd be incredible. Thank you. <laughs> Can you talk about the, the podcast that you were a host on, the one you did for three years before starting the Diary of Space Explorers? Yeah, of course. Uh, so if you... Google Western University Gradcast, you'll be able to find all of their episodes. Um, Gradcast is a podcast that is that was started, designed, and run by graduate students. It is hosted at the radio station. I think they're still doing it virtually now, but normally they go to the radio station at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. And they, as I said earlier in the pod in this episode, their main goal is to help allow graduate students to highlight their research. And it's for graduate students from across the entire university. They, they always try to get students from as many different departments as possible because they don't want to just highlight from a couple of departments because then it's no longer a university graduate student run podcast. It's a, a bio neuroscience podcast for an example. But so what, what a lot of the things I got to gain from that podcast, though, was one part of the reason I joined was as I wanted to be able to improve my communication skills not just in terms of speaking publicly, but also learn how you can talk about someone else's work or your own work to people completely outside of your field. Because I still think that's a skill that's not really taught well in high school and in undergrad. I think you're still taught how to only speak a certain way in one particular field. And I still think, I'm not going to say which department, what fields I think definitely need more work on it, but I think in general, there needs to be more work put towards, all right, you're very good at talking about your work with people in your field and professionals. Now I want you to do the exact same thing, work with people with the complete opposite end of your field. Let's say geologists, you're used to talking to geologists. There are some geologists that are different fields, but you can they can somewhat get an idea of what your work's about. Now I want you to take your work and I want you to go talk to people in psychology and give them the exact same presentation and hope, well not, give them the exact same topic and make and see if they take the same takeaway message. That's going to be a challenge because now you've got to completely rethink how you will deliver your work to them. You can't go for the can't go into the details unless you actually provide them enough information for them to actually understand the details. 
and you can't go into j using jargon language, such as definitions that, oh, every geologist knows this. I don't need to define it. <laughs> you can't just throw this around because everyone's going to go like, you just threw three words at me and you've changed slides. What's going on here? And that was one thing I wanted to learn from GradCast. Like, how could you actually do this while talking with someone face to face? And you also get to learn about active listening. That's something I think I definitely picked up. Because when I think you've, as you know from podcasting, some questions you try to plan ahead if you have a good idea like what that works like, just so you're a little bit prepared. But sometimes you have to think of questions on the go to keep the conversation organic. So you have to use listening to really hear what they're saying. And at the same time, in the other side of your brain, think about, okay, this is what this, yeah, this is very interesting where the journey's going. Now, what could I use to organically have this follow-up? What could be an organic follow-up question? So I think that's a big skill I think I learned is using active listening to really hear what it is that they're saying and how you can follow up with an appropriate and relevant question. Because you don't want to just listen to what they say and go like, okay, cool. So in a completely different turn of events, yeah. <laughs> then it, it makes it sound like you didn't even listen to what they were saying. And, the, what, and then they don't feel as appreciated on the platform, which it, some podcasts I've listened to over Spotify, it, you can definitely tell they're not very organic. They're there just to promote the platform and its message, but they don't really care about what the guest has to say. They just need the guest to talk, which is not never what I wanted. I wanted to avoid that like it was the plague because it's like that is a... It's not a good look for any podcast or any social platform if you're doing it just for you. You're not doing it for the guest. The point of the podcast is to be a platform for the guest. And I think that's what GradCast taught me. That's a fantastic skill. And I'm still struggling. I often still quite sometimes struggle with it because some days I have a, a good day. You know, you're full of energy and your your brain is at a full throttle and then you can do a million things at the same time. But some days you're just just can't do it. So, you know, the, the, I think the skill is to get into that podcast host mode anytime, any day and uh, yeah, keep it running. But that's, that's a very- Oh, and I don't say this the thing, I'm an expert. I'm so, I, there's some days I'm like, oh, okay, or quickly, quickly think. And I'm still learning as well. So I don't want to say that as saying like, oh yeah, I'm so good at it now. It's, it's so easy. It's not an easy thing to do. You have, it's through experience. That's why it's part of the personal journey. You got to do- these types of, um, doesn't have to be podcasting, could just be attending panels, going to workshops, just speaking at seminars, speaking to outreach groups. That's just one way to do it. You have It's just all about practice. You can't just, can't read a book and think, oh, I'm going to be so good at this now. No, 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 no. You have to step away from the standardized way of learning we were taught when we were in school. You have to, it's all through experience. What are your thoughts on video podcasts? People keep asking to, you know, throw in a video. I guess people are just very used to the Joe Rogan kind of podcasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can never understand why would someone just want to look at my face or, you know, in, in, in a boring setting with just some recording equipment? Yeah. I, I don't know how much I could say on that topic in particular, but I think part of it could just be maybe people just like seeing the or reading the facial expressions of the host and the guest when these questions and answers are being um, discussed. Because maybe it's hard for maybe sometimes over a podcast, like just audio, maybe people miss just seeing like when they say this, does it look like they have resentment? Does it look like are they that excited? Or do they actually look pretty sad when they talk about this story? I think it's just they maybe just need that visual. Maybe it's just more impactful for them just to see that visual aspect of the podcast i will say it looks probably a little bit better for the podcast when they have like the couch set up in studio or they have like a proper like giant mic set up and everything i think because then that's what we expect a podcast to look like visually 
It's just a bunch of people sitting around on comfy chairs and chatting. That's what we think about. <laughs> we can, we, so we envision when we think of a podcast. I just, I used to do that for a while with Zoom with my podcast, but didn't really show videos. It was just, I put recordings on YouTube, but it was hard to have that balance with trying to do everything else because you can't just, it's hard to link YouTube uploads to different platforms because they're usually completely separate entities. So you have to pretty much upload it twice. And then you have to create a video file, not just an audio file and a lot of video file things. There are ones on your computer, but not all of them can support either large volume uh, files or they're just not as robust as ones that you have to pay a little bit of subscription for. So it did just come down to time management. It was not, it, it wasn't worth at the end with the amount of time it had to be put into it. It probably would have been different if I, if it wasn't by myself, it could have been a lot, a lot more different, but I felt like the audio versions were getting just more of an impact out there than the video files. I think if I was, the Diaries of Spaces was a lot bigger and we had like a different, more of a studio and support, that would probably be a bit different. I would love to do video podcast unless suddenly i get a, a a bunch of messages saying like oh you should do try and introduce video um options then i might consider it but then you also have to ask your guests if they're even comfortable with video because not everyone else is if they're not comfortable with video it's like okay we will, will not be doing video that's what i used to ask my guests before i stopped doing the video it's like are you okay with video if you're not it's completely okay i will just create an audio version and just have a picture that you will provide me that will just be there we don't need a not a video version you know, at this point, I'm a little surprised, you know, why isn't there a service, a platform where, which collects all these different kinds of tools and rents them out? For example, if I'm sharing the Netflix, I add people I already know, but then I wish there is a tool or a service that basically lets stranger latch onto it and um, at a very minimal price instead of i don't know i don't want i don't need to pay 50 dollars for a, for i don't know something like zencaster or something uh a software when i'm not using 100% of what that mm-hmm. it's offering me right i'm just using it i don't know 10% of the time and uh, basically based on time sharing basis this this tool is supposed to be doing all the managing or avoiding conflict and being able to i, I don't know just uh, top of my head i don't know if it really makes any business sense Pretty sure somebody's already hacking yeah. uh, away at this. Hopefully, That's someone's cool. working on it, and we just need maybe if they hear this episode, they might go like, "Okay, so people are talking about this." <laughs> yeah, please, yes, this is your validation. Please come up with it. <laughs> if space enthusiasts or students or anybody else wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? To reach me directly, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Gavin on the Moon. It's my handle. Wow. <laughs> if you ever want to email me, my I'd say the best email to email in case my university one changes is gavintolomedi at gmail.com. And for my podcast, I'm it's also on Instagram at the Diaries of Space Explorers. And you can also email me if you're interested in being a guest. You have you think of someone you you know someone that you think would be a really good guest, you can then also send me an email at the Diaries of Space Explorers at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook now. The podcast now has a Facebook page, so you should try come in. Follow us there and you can get episode updates um, over Facebook and Instagram. Great. So it's been super fun uh, talking to you, Kevin. I really hope we can catch up again sometime, hopefully in person and do a video podcast. <laughs> recording. Yeah, you know, a in-person podcast would be so good. It would be a great way. Maybe season three. That could be the kickoff of season three. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Yes. 
Great. So thank, thanks for your time. And it was lovely talking to you today. Yeah, I was lucky talking to you too. <laughs>